pray for those folks that they may not be as vulnerable but they're still out of out of house and home and they don't know exactly what their plans are Pray for disaster relief workers, um, that they would be given energy, that they would be given help, that they would be given opportunities um, to be able to witness for Christ. Last but not least, pray for churches in the area. Pray for them that maybe their building was damaged. Uh, maybe they've had to change their, their whole schedule, the way that they do things. Maybe they're looking for ways that they can serve. Um, pray that God would bless those. Father, we praise you that you are our shepherd and you tenderly care for each one of us. Lord, we pray that you would just show your care to the people who are suffering so much in eastern Kentucky. Comfort those who are grieved because they've lost loved ones. Help those who have lost homes. Guide those who don't know what they're going to do. Lord, we thank you that out of tragedy has come ministry where you're being glorified through your people as they've come to those who are in greatest need to their aid. We pray that you would continue to use your people in this way and other means to get the help that they need. And now, Lord, we pray as we open up your word this morning, Lord, you would meet our spiritual needs through the bread of life, the word of God, through the living word, Jesus Christ. Lord, open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and, and counsel us according to it. Let every heart be, be changed. Let not your word return void and help me to faithfully preach it today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, regret is one of the most common human feelings. We all have those times where we wish we could go back and have it all to do over again. Uh, regret is it's a painful emotion. It's a feeling of shame. It's a feeling of embarrassment. In fact, regret's cousin is shame. It's most related um, to shame. But at the same time, does God have that same emotion? Uh, does ever he feel like 
well, I wish I could have done things just a little bit better uh, than I did. Believe it or not, the Bible does say, though, God regretted. While he may not experience regret in the same way that we do, and that's a good thing, the Bible does say God regretted. So there's a lot of questions around that that come to mind. Does it mean that God somehow is changeable? Um, could he change his mind? Um, could he actually have done things a little bit better than before? Some heavy questions. This morning, we're going to take a deep dive in the Word of God to examine it, to find out, does God regret? And if he does, what does it mean that God regrets? And what does it mean for our regrets that God regrets? If you have a copy of God's Word, the Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. That's what we're going to be reading and focusing on this morning. And this is part of a, a sermon series called Genesis Beginnings, where we're going from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, just right before the call of Abraham starts there in Genesis chapter 12. And it's from this that we really discover our origins. We discover more about who God is, where we came from him, and now who we are because of this. So these are some vital chapters in God's word. If we don't get the beginning right, if we don't get the foundations right of scripture, then all the rest of the Bible is going to be misinterpreted by us. So that's our burden in this sermon series, to really discover who God is by looking at the beginning and then who we are. So let's look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. This is God's holy word. So this is the story 
of how men and women began to have babies, to begin to populate all of the earth. This is the fulfillment of what's called the creation mandate, where God told Adam and Eve to go out and to multiply and to fill the earth and to be fruitful. And we see this worked out now, not in a perfect world like it was in the garden, but in a fallen world like it is after sin. So this gives us the answer, how was the earth populated? We, we read in chapter 5 about all the long lives and the genealogy that were, that were given there. And that sort of gives us an answer. How can these people have so many children? Well, it's because they were living such long lifespans. This gives us an answer about how people began to fill out the earth and, and start to live in the different nations and, and to organize themselves. And, and we'll see this sort of culminated in the Tower of Babel that we'll look at in chapter 11 in, in several weeks from now. Unfortunately, though, this passage is also showing us as man, mankind began to increase in number, uh, the corruption of mankind also began um, to increase. We're told here that every thought of every person, the, the inclination of their heart and mind wasn't bent toward worshiping God and honoring God. It, it was bent continually toward selfishness and, and sin and, and going one's own way. And this grieved God's heart um, very much. There was one person, though, that was different, that stood out in this generation. In verse 8, we hear about this person. First mention of this person in all the Bible, Noah. Verse 8 says he found favor, or he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And, and next week, we'll look at how God used Noah and how he was standing against the current of his culture. And he was living a righteous life while everyone around him was living such an unrighteous life um, against God. He was the exception. I played football in high school. And one of the, the lessons that, that you learn from the game of, of football is all about assignment. So with every play, whether you're on offense or defense or special teams, every player gets a different assignment. And the goal simply is, is that if every one of the players did their individual assignment, did their job, then that particular play would be successful. That's the game of football. As complex as it, it, as it is played out, that's really what it is. If every player does their job, it's going to work out. On, on the kickoff team, and you all know what the kickoff looks like, right? Where the, the, the team kicks off the ball, and then they're now on defense. They're, they're running down the field, and their job is simply to tackle the, the player with the ball. The coaches all, all, always describe on kickoff team, your assignment is to stay in your lane. 
The temptation for the players on the kickoff team is to get outside of their lane. And say you're over here and you're running down the field, the temptation is to try to chase the ball, to go all the way across the field to try to get the ball. Coaches didn't want you to do that. They wanted you to run straight down the field in a sort of in an imaginary lane, and if the player then comes into your lane, then you tackle him. That was your assignment. Your assignment on kickoff was always to stay in your lane. Well, during this time in history, God had given people a moral assignment. And their job was to stay in their lane. Stay within the limits and the boundaries of God's moral law. But what did they do? They went and chased a lie. They went and worshipped other things other than God. They got outside their moral lane and they became corrupted. And they became like sheep without a shepherd. And they did whatever they wanted. They, they, they went astray. And it grieved God's heart. And he said, my spirit will not strive with mankind forever because they are corrupt their days will be 120 years. So God announced judgment at that point. Judgment over the sin of, of mankind. And I believe what he was talking about here is the flood. I don't think he's talking about limiting man's lifetime, lifespan to 120 years. Because we do hear of people living longer than that. What he's talking about here from this point until the flood was going to be 120 years before his judgment was unleashed because of the sin of mankind. And, and what provoked God so much there? Well, it wasn't any one thing. Like I said, God not only sees our actions, but he knows our hearts. He, he knows our thoughts. And he heard the thoughts of mankind, and it was continually about other things other than him. They didn't want anything to do with God. And it hurt God. When the Lord, this is verse 5, when the Lord saw that the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the mind was nothing but evil all the time, People were simply wicked because they had forgotten God and they were living their lives based on themselves. Does it name, it, it does not, however, name one specific way that the people got outside their lane. Verse 1 tells us about this. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. You have to know as we read this, this is one of the, if not the most, argued over passages in the Old Testament. There are so many different ways that they interpret this passage in the Old Testament. Who are these sons of God, and, and what did they do that was so wrong? Well, some say 
that the sons of God were fallen angels that either possessed men and then took wives for themselves or they came in human form and did the same thing. Others have said that these are men from the godly line of Seth degrading themselves by intermingling and intermarrying with women from the immoral line of Cain. Personally, I think the best explanation for the sons of God is these were human beings, but it's talking about rulers. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, a son of God is another word for a king. And I believe these evil rulers didn't stay within their lane, didn't stay within the moral boundaries that God had given to them, and instead they went and stole these women for themselves. No matter if the women were married to other men or, or not, they became arrogant and proud because of their position as rulers or as sons of God, and they were sort of building a harem for themselves, and this greatly displeased God. But no matter what view you take of this passage, this much is clear. People were simply going their own way. They were violating the law of God, and they were going outside the moral lane that he had given to them. There's more, there's more mystery to this passage, though. The Nephilim. What is it talking about here in verse 4? The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. And then it mentions men of renown. Who are they? Well, the only other use of the word Nephilim comes in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers... The people of Israel were right outside Canaan, the land that God had promised them. And they sent a group of spies into the land to examine the land to decide if they were going to go in and try to take the land that God had promised to them. Some of the spies came back really afraid. And they didn't want to because ultimately they disbelieved God that he could do this for them. They said there's giants in the land. And some of the men within this group were called the Nephilim. They were like giants. So in, in Genesis, we're told that these giants were also living sort of as a precursor to the giants, the Nephilim, who would be in the land of Canaan in, in Numbers. But the word Nephilim also means fallen ones. What I believe the point here is with the Nephilim is to remind us that even though people by human standards can be big and powerful they're also fallen 
they're, they're fallen ones. They're not to be feared. They're not to be worshipped. They're not to be looked upon like they're everything. I think a, a modern day application would be the worship of celebrities. Many people worship. They put on this pedestal celebrities in our culture. And they think they're so big and attractive and, and powerful. They're like the Nephilim, right? But God wants us to remember that no matter how big people are by human standards, no matter how Nephilim they look, they're still fallen ones. They don't deserve our worship. Of course, people deserve our love. But they don't deserve our worship. Only God deserves our worship. Nor should we be intimidated by them like the spies were in the land. We should fear God alone and always follow him. But then we get into this too. We hear something somewhat confusing, maybe even troubling to us. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. So the, the sin of mankind had, had increased so much that God grieved and even regretted even making mankind, man and woman, on the face of the earth. And just like I said in the beginning, all sorts of questions fill our mind. Why does God regret? How does God regret? What, what does this mean? Well, he regretted not because of anything that he had done, but because of what we have become. God doesn't regret his previous actions. He regrets what we have become in our sinfulness. God did not create human beings from the beginning, and we've already seen this, to live in sin and immorality and, and evil. But regardless, their every thought at this point was on evil all the time, and it grieved the heart of God deeply. God is holy, and he, and he grieves that we have chosen to live unholy lives. But at the same time, God is awesome, and he is mighty. He is a, a God who is capable of such complexity. God is so complex and big that he knows what's going to happen before it even takes place. It's called his foreknowledge. Even though he, he knows the future in advance, that doesn't mean he doesn't grieve and weep over the sinfulness of humanity when it takes place. He, he grieves it when he sees it, even though he already knew.
goes with that. He's immutable. God's perfect in all of his ways, and he, he never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. His character is always going to be the same. But he's, com he's complex. He can, he can grieve some human action that is wrong, which he knows in advance will take place, and yet choose to permit that action for a greater purpose and a, and a greater good. The cross of Jesus Christ is the, the greatest example of this. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 prophesies about the cross like this. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, it did not give God the Father joy to watch as his son was crucified for our sin. But at the same time, there's this complexity with God. It did give him joy as his son was crucified because it was going to accomplish our salvation. God is a complex God. He's awesome. He's greater than us. He's infinite. So all this means humanity, it should grieve our hearts too. But why doesn't our sin grieve our own hearts? It grieves God's heart deeply. Why doesn't our sin hurt our heart the way it hurts God's heart? We have a problem. Not only do we have a problem with sin, we have a problem with regret. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 speaks of, of sorrow over sin and our regret. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief or feeling sorry is another way to say that, doesn't help us at all, if that's all that it is. It, it further kills. It, it, it further increases that, that feeling of just do-over and shame that we have. Worldly regret is it's feeling bad over the things that have happened to you because of the bad things that you have done. It, it, it's not necessarily being repentant of the bad stuff that you have done. It's just feeling bad that things went bad for you because of it. Worldly grief just leaves us chained. It, it, it leaves us feeling bad. It doesn't help those do-over regret feelings that have. A person can, can feel badly about 
what happened without actually having godly sorrow over the sin that they did. A person, this is an extreme example, could murder somebody and they could feel badly about how it hurt their family or how they hurt that person. But in the very next breath, they could say, well, I did what I had to do. I, I feel bad about the problems I've caused because of the, the gossip I've shared toward this person. But hey, I had to watch out for myself. You can feel bad about something, feel sorrow or be sorry about something without actually feeling godly sorrow and grief over the actual sin that you have done. And that's what God is after. And that's what this verse speaks of. Godly grief is different. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, we're told. Godly grief is sorrow not just over the, the consequences of sin, but over the sin itself and how that sin has grieved the heart of God. Godly grief leads to repentance. God, I have sinned against you, my Father. I've, I've done things my own way, and I was wrong. And I've hurt you, and I've grieved you, and I've hurt other people. Will you forgive me for that? That's godly grief. That's true conviction of sin. And that leads to forgiveness. That leads to freedom over regret. That alone can erase those do-over feelings that we all carry because of our past. Only Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, for our sins, past, present, and future is going to be able to erase the pain of regret and take away our shame. Because it was the Lord's will to crush him, not because of what he had done wrong. No, he was innocent. He was righteous, but, but because of what we have done wrong. All of our sins, all of those do-overs, all of that regret was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he paid for it all. But he didn't stay in that grave. He arose. And you can know him today. He's not still in some grave. No, he's alive. And you can receive him today. And you can receive the eternal life that he provides, the wages of sin is death. Regret just kills. It keeps you locked up and chained. You can't move forward with regret. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you need that offer today? 
Do you need to receive the gift of eternal life today? It's available to you today. And if you've already received the gift, do you need to take hold of the gift again? As, as Christians, we still sin. That's the reality of our life. We're no longer enslaved to sin. The power of sin has been broken in our life, but the presence of sin is still an ongoing reality. We can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, start to obey God, but we don't always obey God. So just as Jesus told the disciples that he had to wash their feet because one whose feet was washed was already clean, our sins are ultimately forgiven as Christians, but we need that daily cleansing and forgiveness of our sins. We need to continually go, go back to the Father with godly sorrow and grief and confess our sins to Him so that He can wash and clean anew. And we can walk daily without the pain and the chain of regret in our life. Christian, do you need to be set free from that? Forgiveness and freedom is available to you. It's available to you again and again. So this morning, maybe what you need to do is to ask God to pinpoint sin in your life that maybe even you aren't even aware of. Ask him to give you that godly grief. Because that's what we want. Because godly grief gives freedom. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets. The way that we get rid of our regret now in the Christian life is through godly grief. It starts there. So then we can confess, then we can ask for forgiveness, and then we can turn from that in repentance and live regret-free. So maybe this morning you need to ask God for some godly grief over sin. Or maybe you're already there. Maybe you need to begin to confess those sins and ask God for forgiveness and the power to turn from those sins and in repentance or maybe you're recognizing that you've never really truly confessed your sins to God maybe you're still living life apart from him maybe you feel badly about things that you have done but remember, feeling bad isn't the same thing as conviction of sin. Hatred of your own sin and what you have done. Maybe you realize that you've offended and grieved the heart of God. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to pay for that sin that has grieved his heart so much. And he invites you to come. The gift is available. 
But just like any other gift, you have to accept the gift. Will you accept the gift today and begin life with Christ, walking with him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, today we've shared in your word about some really heavy stuff. And Lord, we're incapable of finding our own solutions to this problem of regret in our life. Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts and minds and in my own and help us, Lord, to turn from our sin to Christ through godly grief, through confession, through asking for forgiveness, Lord God. And I pray that you would erase some regret, erase regret this morning, Lord God, in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Will you stand?